1: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas by Jules Verne. First part, chapter 23, Agri Somnia. The following day, January 10, the Nautilus resumed its travels in midwater but at a remarkable speed that I estimated to be at least 35 miles per hour. The propeller was going so fast I could neither follow nor count its revolutions. I thought about how this marvellous electric force not only gave motion, heat, and light to the Nautilus, but even protected it against outside attack, transforming it into a sacred arc no profane hand could touch without being blasted. My wonderment was boundless, and it went from the submersible itself to the engineer who had created it. We were traveling due west, and on January 11, we doubled Cape Wessel, located in longitude 135 degrees and latitude 10 degrees north, the western tip of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Reefs were still numerous, but more widely scattered, and were fixed on the chart with the greatest accuracy. The Nautilus easily avoided the Money Breakers to port, and the Victoria Reefs to starboard positioned at longitude 130 degrees on the 10th parallel, which we went along rigorously. On January 13, arriving in the Timor Sea, Captain Nemo raised the island of that name at longitude 122 degrees. This island, whose surface area measures 1,625 square leagues, is governed by Rajas. These aristocrats deem themselves the sons of crocodiles, in other words, descendants with the most exalted origins to which a human being can lay claim. Accordingly, their scaly ancestors infest the island's rivers, and are the subjects of special veneration. They are sheltered, nurtured, flattered, pampered, and offered a ritual diet of nubile maidens, and woe to the foreigner who lifts a finger against these sacred Saurians. But the Nautilus wanted nothing to do with these nasty animals. Timor Island was visible for barely an instant at noon while the chief officer determined his position. I also caught only a glimpse of Little Roti Island, part of the same group, whose women have a well-established reputation for beauty in the Malaysian marketplace. After our position fix, the Nautilus's latitude bearings were modulated to the southwest. Our prow pointed to the Indian Ocean. Where would Captain Nemo's fancies take us? Would he head up to the shores of Asia? Would he pull nearer to the beaches of Europe? Unlikely choices for a man who avoided populated areas. So, would he go down south? Would he double the Cape of Good Hope, then Cape Horn, and push on to the Antarctic Pole? Finally, would he return to the seas of the Pacific, where his Nautilus could navigate freely and easily? Time would tell. After cruising along the Cartier, Hibernia, Syringapatham, and Scott Reefs, the solid element's last exertions against the liquid element, we were beyond all sight of shore by January 14. The Nautilus slowed down in an odd manner, and very unpredictable in its ways, it sometimes swam in the midst of the waters, sometimes drifted on their surface. During this phase of our voyage, Captain Nemo conducted interesting experiments on the different temperatures in various strata of the sea. Under ordinary conditions, such readings are obtained using some pretty complicated instruments, whose findings are dubious to say the least, whether they're thermometric sounding lines, whose glass often shatters under the water's pressure, or those devices based on the varying resistance of metals to electric currents. The results so obtained can't be adequately double-checked. By contrast, Captain Nemo would seek the sea's temperatures by going himself into its depths, And when he placed his thermometer in contact with the various layers of liquid, he found the sought for degree immediately and with certainty. And so, by loading up its ballast tanks, or by sinking obliquely with its slanting fins, the Nautilus successfully reached depths of three thousand, four thousand, five thousand, seven thousand, nine thousand, and ten thousand meters. And the ultimate conclusion from these experiments was that, in all latitudes, the sea had a permanent temperature of 4.5 degrees centigrade at a depth of 1,000 meters. I watched these experiments with the most intense fascination. Captain Nemo brought a real passion to them. I often wondered why he took these observations. Were they for the benefit of his fellow man? It was unlikely, because sooner or later his work would perish with him in some unknown sea. Unless he intended the results of experiments for me but that meant this strange voyage of mine would come to an end, and no such end was in sight. Be that as it may, Captain Nemo also introduced me to the different data he had obtained on the relative densities of the water in our globe's chief seas. From this news I would derive some personal enlightenment having nothing to do with science. It happened the morning of January 15. The captain, with whom I was strolling on the platform, asked me if I knew how salt water differs in density from sea to sea. I said no, adding that there was a lack of rigorous scientific observations on this subject. I have taken such observations, he told me, and I can vouch for their reliability. Fine, I replied, but the Nautilus lives in a separate world, and the secrets of its scientists don't make their way ashore. You're right, Professor, he told me after a few moments of silence. This is a separate world, It's as alien to the Earth as the planets accompanying our globe around the Sun, and will never become familiar with the work of scientists on Saturn or Jupiter. But since fate has linked our two lives, I can reveal the results of my observations to you. I'm all attention, Captain. You're aware, Professor, that salt water is denser than fresh water, but this density isn't uniform. In essence, if I represent the density of fresh water by 1.000, Then I find 1.028 for the waters of the Atlantic, 1.026 for the waters of the Pacific, 1.030 for the waters of the Mediterranean. Aha, I thought, so he ventures into the Mediterranean. 1.018 for the waters of the Ionian Sea, and 1.029 for the waters of the Adriatic. Assuredly, the Nautilus didn't avoid the heavily-traveled seas of Europe. And from this insight, I concluded that the ship would take us back, perhaps very soon, to more civilized shores. I expected Ned Land to greet this news with unfeigned satisfaction. For several days, our work hours were spent in all sorts of experiments, on the degree of salinity in waters of different depths, or on their electric properties, coloration, and transparency. And in every instance, Captain Nemo displayed an ingenuity equaled only by his graciousness toward me. Then I saw no more of him for some days, and again lived on board in seclusion. On January 16, the Nautilus seemed to have fallen asleep just a few meters beneath the surface of the water. Its electric equipment had been turned off, and the motionless propeller let it ride with the waves. I assumed that the crew were busy with interior repairs, required by the engine's strenuous mechanical action. My companions and I then witnessed an unusual sight. The panels in the lounge were open and since the Nautilus's beacon was off, a hazy darkness reigned in the midst of the waters. Covered with heavy clouds, the stormy sky gave only the faintest light to the ocean's upper strata. I was observing the state of the sea under these conditions, and even the largest fish were nothing more than ill-defined shadows, when the Nautilus was suddenly transferred into broad daylight. At first I thought the beacon had gone back on and was casting its electric light into the liquid mass. I was mistaken and after a hasty examination i discovered my error the nautilus had drifted into the midst of some phosphorescent strata which in this darkness came off as positively dazzling this effect was caused by myriads of tiny luminous animals whose brightness increased when they glided over the metal hull of our submersible in the midst of these luminous sheets of water i then glimpsed flashes of light like those seen inside a blazing furnace from streams of molten lead or from masses of metal brought to a white heat. Flashes so intense that certain areas of the light became shadows by comparison, in a fiery setting from which every shadow should seemingly have been banished. No, this was no longer the calm emission of our usual lighting. This light throbbed with an unprecedented vigor and activity. You sensed that it was alive. In essence, it was a cluster of countless open-sea infusoria, of Noctiluca, an eighth of an inch wide, actual globules of transparent jelly, equipped with a thread-like tentacle, up to 25,000 of which have been counted in 30 cubic centimeters of water. And the power of their light was increased by those glimmers unique to medusas, starfish, common jellyfish, angel wing clams, and other phosphorescent zoophytes, which were saturated with grease from organic matter decomposed by the sea, and perhaps with mucus secreted by fish. For several hours the Nautilus drifted in this brilliant tide, and our wonderment grew when we saw huge marine animals cavorting in it, like the fire-dwelling salamanders of myth. In the midst of these flames that didn't burn, I could see swift, elegant porpoises, the tireless pranksters of the seas, and sailfish three meters long, those shrewd heralds of hurricanes, whose fearsome broadsword sometimes banged against the lounge window. Then smaller fish appeared, miscellaneous triggerfish, leatherjacks, unicornfish, and a hundred others that left stripes on this luminous atmosphere in their course. Some magic lay behind this dazzling sight. Perhaps some atmospheric condition had intensified this phenomenon. Perhaps a storm had been unleashed on the surface of the waves? But only a few meters down, the Nautilus felt no tempest's fury, and the ship rocked peacefully in the midst of the calm waters. And so it went, some new wonder constantly delighting us. I observed and classified as zoophytes, articulates, mollusks, and fish. The days passed quickly, and I no longer kept track of them. Ned, as usual, kept looking for changes of pace from our standard fare. Like actual snails, we were at home in our shell, and I can vouch that it's easy to turn into a full-fledged snail. So this way of living began to seem simple and natural to us, and we no longer envisioned a different lifestyle on the surface of the planet Earth when something happened to remind us of our strained circumstances. On January 18, the Nautilus lay in longitude 105 degrees and latitude 15 degrees south. The weather was threatening, the sea rough and billowy. The wind was blowing a strong gust from the east. The barometer, which had been falling for some days, forecast an approaching struggle of the elements. I had climbed onto the platform just as the chief officer was taking his readings of our Out of habit, I waited for him to pronounce his daily phrase. But that day, it was replaced by a different phrase, just as incomprehensible. Almost at once I saw Captain Nemo appear, lift his spyglass, and inspect the horizon. For some minutes the captain stood motionless, rooted to the spot contained within the field of his lens. Then he lowered his spyglass and exchanged about ten words with his chief officer. The latter seemed to be in the grip of an excitement he tried in vain to control. More in command of himself, Captain Nemo remained cool. Furthermore, he seemed to be raising certain objections that his chief officer kept answering with flat assurances. At least, that's what I gathered from their differences in tone and gesture. As for me, I stared industriously in the direction under observation, but without spotting a thing. Sky and water merged into a perfectly clean horizon line. Meanwhile, Captain Nemo strolled from one end of the platform to the other, not glancing at me, perhaps not even seeing me. His step was firm, but less regular than usual. Sometimes he would stop, cross his arms over his chest, and observe the sea. What could he be looking for over that immense expanse? By then the Nautilus lay hundreds of miles from the nearest coast. The chief officer kept lifting his spyglass and stubbornly examining the horizon, walking up and down, stamping his foot in his nervous agitation, a sharp contrast to his superior. But this mystery would inevitably be cleared up, and soon, because Captain Nemo gave orders to increase speed. At once the engine stepped up its drive power, setting the propeller in swifter rotation. Just then the chief officer drew the captain's attention anew. The latter interrupted his strolling and aimed his spyglass at the point indicated. He observed it a good while. As for me, deeply puzzled, I went below to the lounge and brought back an excellent long-range telescope I habitually used. Leaning my elbows on the beacon housing, which jutted from the stern of the platform, I got set to scour that whole stretch of sky and sea. But no sooner had I peered into the eyepiece than the instrument was snatched from my hands. I spun around. Captain Nemo was standing before me, but I almost didn't recognize him. His facial features were transfigured. Gleaming with dark fire, his eyes had shrunk beneath his frowning brow. His teeth were half-bared. His rigid body, clenched fists and head drawn between his shoulders all attested to a fierce hate breathing from every pore he didn't move my spyglass fell from his hand and rolled at his feet had i accidentally caused these symptoms of anger did this incomprehensible individual think i detected some secret forbidden to guests on the nautilus no i wasn't the subject of his hate because he wasn't even looking at me his eyes stayed stubbornly focused on that inscrutable point of the horizon Finally Captain Nemo regained his self-control. His facial appearance, so profoundly changed, now resumed its usual calm. He addressed a few words to his chief officer in their strange language. Then he turned to me. "'Professor Aronnax. he told me in a tone of some urgency, "'I ask that you now honour one of the binding agreements between us.' "'Which one, Captain?' "'You and your companions must be placed in confinement "'until I see fit to set you free.' "'You're in command,' I answered, gaping at him.' but may I address a question to you? You may not, sir. After that, I stopped objecting and started obeying, since resistance was useless. I went below to the cabin occupied by Ned Land and Kosai, and I informed them of the captain's decision. I'll let the reader decide how this news was received by the Canadian. In any case, there was no time for explanations. Four crewmen were waiting at the door, and they led us to the cell where we had spent our first night aboard the Nautilus. Ned Land tried to lodge a complaint, but the only answer he got was a door shut in his face. "'Will Master tell me what this means?' Kosai asked me. I told my companions what had happened. They were as astonished as I was, but no wiser. Then I sank into deep speculation, and Captain Nemo's strange facial seizure kept haunting me. I was incapable of connecting two ideas in logical order, and I had strayed into the most absurd hypotheses when I was snapped out of my mental struggles by these words from Ned Land, "'Well!' "'Look here! Lunch is served!' Indeed, the table had been laid. Apparently Captain Nemo had given this order at the same time he commanded the Nautilus to pick up speed. "'Will Master allow me to make him a recommendation?' Kosai asked me. "'Yes, my boy,' I replied. "'Well, Master needs to eat his lunch. It's prudent, because we have no idea what the future holds. "'You're right, Kosai. "'Unfortunately,' Ned Land said, "'they've only given us the standard menu.' "'Ned, my friend,' Kosai answered, What would you say if they'd given us no lunch at all?' This dose of sanity cut the harpooner's complaints clean off. We sat down at the table. Our meal proceeded pretty much in silence. I ate very little. Kosai, everlastingly prudent, force-fed himself, and despite the menu, Ned Land didn't waste a bite. Then, lunch over, each of us propped himself in a corner. Just then the luminous globe lighting our cell went out, leaving us in profound darkness. Nedland soon dozed off, and to my astonishment, Kosai also fell into a heavy slumber. I was wondering what could have caused this urgent need for sleep, when I felt a dense torpor saturate my brain. I tried to keep my eyes open, but they closed in spite of me. I was in the grip of anguished hallucinations. Obviously, some sleep-inducing substance had been laced into the food we'd just eaten. So, imprisonment wasn't enough to conceal Captain Nemo's plans from us. Sleep was needed as well. Then I heard the hatches close. The sea's undulations, which had been creating a gentle rocking motion, now ceased. Had the Nautilus left the surface of the ocean? Was it re-entering the motionless strata deep in the sea? I tried to fight off this drowsiness. It was impossible. My breathing grew weaker. I felt a mortal chill freeze my dull, nearly paralyzed limbs. Like little domes of lead, my lids fell over my eyes. I couldn't raise them. A morbid sleep full of hallucinations seized my whole being. Then the visions disappeared and left me in utter oblivion. End of chapter 23
0: Do you love the American Constitution? We too. Please help letting this podcast survive in the current cancel culture. Amazon recently deleted our Peter Kanzler collection, probably for being too cheap. It was Locke, Hobbes and the US Constitution for only 15 bucks. Check out our Peter Kanzler at Barnes & Noble, Lulu or do a quick DuckDuckGo search to buy American collections that come at the lowest price possible to keep civil law great. That's P-E-T-E-R-K-A-N-Z-L-E-R featuring the original texts from Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, the US Constitution, Machiavelli, and many more, always bound together in just one book. Thank you very much.